This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones and joining me once again as we kick off the new year is my esteemed co-host, Move Along Khan. I mean Matthew Rushing from Dallas, Texas. Matthew, how were your holidays? Uh, They were good, Chris. I had a really good holiday season. I've got a lot of rest in, uh, relaxing, um, and then New Year hit, and I was at a wedding with some friends, and they were getting married and got very little sleep for a couple of days. Uh, so other than that, I uh, had a wonderful time, uh, just a fantastic time being off. So how about you, Chris? It was pretty good. I didn't get as much rest as I had hoped to get, you know, taking a break from the shows. There's so much other stuff going on, but we had a nice holiday break, a lot of family activities, uh, our traditional New Year's Eve, New Year's Day time with the extended family, lots of food, lots of sake. So uh, so it was good and ready to kick off the new year. And and uh, it's very exciting today to be talking about Star Trek again on the show. You know, we just recorded the orb right before this, which is why I called you Move Along Khan, because that's your screen name as we talked about Move Along Home. But it's kind of fitting for today's show as well, because we're going to talk about con number four, the comic, a little bit here during the news segment. Yeah, which was, uh, wow, good stuff right there. So, But uh, sadly, Chris, not a lot of news for us to actually talk about. There's just really one news story before we talk about con four, and this revolves around the uh, infamous John Byrne photo comic uh, that so we've been talking so much about I think in, in, in over the last few months honestly and uh, Chris uh, what was the big news that came out well this is something that of course we have mentioned before that John Byrne had said that he's open to the idea of doing this photo comic as an ongoing series if IDW were interested And apparently they are interested because IDW has announced that they are going to launch photocomics as a second ongoing series. Which is just an interesting thing to me, Chris. Um, Now, I do have to say I did like the storyline in the photocomics. So if the storylines are that good, I I will, would I say enjoy reading them? Yeah, the storylines are that good. I'll enjoy reading them. And so hopefully that'll still be the case. I would think this would be a hard thing to try and do and put out every single month as an ongoing comic because it's a lot of work uh, to make it look good digitally. That's the thing. You know, IDW has had a history with the Star Trek ongoing series, the Abramsworth series of falling behind schedule. And I think that these photo comics, even though... You're taking scenes from episodes. I think they're more time-consuming to create than a normal comic. So I'm a little bit weary about you know the how this is going to play out as a monthly ongoing series. I I'll, I'll read them if they put them out. I'm I, I can't say that I'm excited about the news. You know th- this isn't something that I was sitting around saying I hope that they do this as a monthly ongoing. Yeah, uh, um, uh, that's the thing, Chris. Says. I, I just can't say that I'm I'm super excited um, about this, and and mainly it's because, uh, you know, we read the first one. I thought it was a nice novelty act, um, and but I don't really yeah. see it, it, it lasting. But hey, you know, if they feel like they, they they can get enough fans to be able to enjoy it and to read it, I say more power to them. It just probably won't be my favorite comic that they do that, and that's quite all right, you know. Um, I don't have to like everything Star Trek. Uh, and if we've learned anything as Star Trek fans, 
Um, we all have pretty big opinions, and we all pretty we all think pretty highly of our opinions um, because we all think we know which is the best Star Trek movie. We all think we know which is the best Captain. So you know, um, th- there should be comics for everyone, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So uh, I say the best of luck to them if they are going to go down this path. Um, I-, I hope it does turn out really well. Yeah, yeah, same here. That that was well said. So so we'll see how it turns out, and and how the monthly differs from the first one, because you know maybe the monthlies will not be quite as beefy as the first one either, which is probably the route that I would suspect them to take. Um, John Byrne does say here that he shipped off 70 new pages this morning to Chris Ryle uh, for the project. So that's um, that's quite a lot of pages. All right. Well, yeah, like you said, Matthew, that's the only news item that we, that we have right now. I'm sure a lot of new stuff will be picking up here as everyone comes back from the holidays and the year gets rolling uh, over at Pocket as well as at IDW and elsewhere. But until then, uh, we do have something else to talk about. As I mentioned just a moment ago, con number four is out. Uh, We've been loving the series so far, waiting for the end of it. We've got the, uh, we've got part four here. We still got a month to go to find out completely how we get from what we saw in con number one to what we saw on the screen in Into Darkness. What did you think about number four? And before we go on, spoiler alert, we will be talking about some elements of the comic here. I will try not to give everything away, but if you haven't read it yet, uh, just be aware that we will talk about what's in the book. So, Matthew, what did you think about it? Yeah, you know, Chris, um, again, I think this comic is just continuing to be greatness. Um, I've really enjoyed it, and I I love that we're getting to see um, the, the background of Khan and uh, especially, I think this is the one of the parts of the story that we've been most waiting for is this, you know, uh, when he's woken up by Marcus and how Marcus deals with this person. And obviously, with, I, I think this is just great. It, it adds so much to the character of Marcus and the character of Khan. I do have to say, I, I was a, a little interested that this doesn't involve in any way any sort of manipulation of Khan in the sense of with his people um that hasn't shown up yet so i'm thinking maybe that's part five of the story um is that Khan finds out you know i mean he realizes spoiler alert spoiler alert at the very end of the comic who he is really yeah so i'm just very interested to see how that part plays out And, and they they've got me you know they, they they've still got me really caring about what happens and how it plays out and i think that's uh, you know you've been doing this for four issues now to make me actually care about the fifth issue this much coming out i'm, I'm excited about so yeah for me it, it's it was another winner what about you chris i enjoyed it i have to say i did not enjoy it nearly as much as i enjoyed the first three i And and I'm someone who really enjoys the middle parts of stories. You know, I love the search for Spock. I love the Empire Strikes Back. I like these middle parts of stories. And this definitely feels like that, but it feels kind of shallow to me and that there's not enough stuff here. I was disappointed that it picks up with Marcus and Harrison in orbit of the the facility, Section 31 facility, where they're building the vengeance there, and that we didn't get the part about who discovered the Botany Bay out in space. Was it actually Marcus who discovered it? Was it someone else and they brought Khan to Earth and to Marcus? How did Khan end up looking the way that he does now? You know, this was something I was expecting to find out in comic number four and it wasn't there and they may go back and they, they may fill it in in comic number five, but that seems like a lot of stuff to cram in to the final comic, because as you said, we also need to know what happens with his people, what turns him against Marcus now that he's realized who he is. It's a lot of stuff to cram in there. So it feels like they're just going to skip over the whole discovery process and the whole cosmetic change process. Yeah, I guess that is a that is something that I hadn't thought about. The fact that he he does look different now um, that they hadn't 
thought of it, but I I guess maybe if we can infer that that's what happened um, at this point. You well, know. we can definitely infer that's what happened, and that's what I'm doing. But but I was hoping that that yeah. was going to be part of this background story. Yeah, I get I get what you're saying. That makes sense. I hadn't thought about that. I, I think the part that I liked uh, was um, watching the way that Marcus does wake him up, uh, and the fact that mm-hmm. he kind of feeds him this story that he is um, John Harrison and he is this agent. Um, it reminds me of a lot of what fans were thinking about and contemplating about who this guy was going to be. So I felt like that was kind of a service to all of us who had been wondering, okay, who is this John Harrison going to be? What's he going to be like? Um, and, and all that. And and then this idea that, uh, you know, Marcus also knows that he's going to remember who he is and he's just going to be ready right. for it. At least he thinks he's going to be uh, when he figures out who he is. So I, I liked all that. And then, of course, there was also the discussion uh, over Kronos was that Praxis and had it destroyed itself uh, in the yeah. same way that we had before. And, um, well, we now have the answer from this comic. So I thought that that was kind of cool. And we also know who's responsible. Uh, it's it's John yeah. Harrison Khan himself <laughs> destroying Praxis. Plus, we know that continuing what we have seen on screen in the Abrams verse, the spelling discrepancy continues because Praxis in the Abrams verse has two X's in the middle. Ah, there you go. Uh, and then, of course, <laughs> um, what I also thought was kind of smart here in this comic is that they tie in the fact that Sulu's sister is yeah. a part of Section 31 at this point as well, and that she's actually an aide to Admiral Marcus. So I thought that that was right. really interesting and a great tie-in to what we've already been seeing in the ongoing comics. Um, so those are some of the things that I did like. Yeah, I noticed that too. I thought that was nice for them to to do that little crossover between this series and the, the ongoing comic because it does help piece together those uh, different elements of the story. And the other thing, Chris, that I really enjoyed and I thought was was smart was just the way that... You know, we'd already seen how um, smart he is and how he was fast he could learn. And so that they gave him all of this new technology to be able to play with. And he is able to improve on it immediately. Um, just so the, the, the sheer genius of these augments and Khan himself is scary. So you can you can really see the, the fear obviously, that Marcus would have of unleashing 71 more of these people. And and so talk about freaky scary. And so, yeah, I think that's that's uh, that's one of the things I I liked here as well, that uh, Marcus knows what he's dealing with. And basically, he knows he's playing with fire. Another thing that this addresses is an item that I think for most Star Trek fans was one of the more ridiculous elements of into darkness on the movie screen which was this little personal transporter that allowed Mm -hmm. harrison to get from earth to chronos and if i'm not mistaken isn't there a line in the movie or maybe it was in a comic where scotty mentions that harrison used his equations to create this transporter because it goes back to the whole thing where scotty was beaming porthos to Mars, is mm-hmm. that right? And then back to San Francisco. But in here, Harrison claims that he created this personal transporter device himself. You know, it didn't exist before. I created it over the past weeks in the station's labs. And then he makes a statement that while he can't get all the way from Earth to Kronos in one shot with this personal transporter, by transporting from planet to planet to planet, he can actually get there faster than a starship. And that didn't make any sense to me personally, but... Yeah, uh, like that there's a range so you could hop, yeah, from... I mean, I get what he's but saying. But he's saying he has know. to make many, 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 many hops yeah. to get there, but he can still get there faster than a starship. Well, in the JJ universe, they can get to Kronos in like 20 minutes. So. Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's right. But whether or not it makes any sense, at least it actually does attempt to 
explain the existence of this device that has never existed in Star Trek before and seems to defy all logic in the Star Trek universe of a personal transporter that beams you from one planet to another distant planet. Because why would you even need starships if you could beam yourself from planet to planet? Uh, this is true. Um, you know, if you could do that, it sure would be a lot easier. It would be. So uh, the one more thing I was going to point out, when we were talking about Marcus waking him up and convincing him that he's Harrison, what I wasn't clear on here, are they implying that that scene is taking place, that's the first time that Khan is waking up after he's been discovered on the Botany Bay and they've done some cosmetic surgery to him and all, and then they're waking him up and they're feeding him the story? Or is it actually implying that he has already been working for Starfleet and something did happen and he's kind of lost his memory? It's I can see it both ways. My My read on it, because... Marcus t- gives gives him this whole story about how you were one of our best engineers and you can do all this. My take on it was he's just, he knows how smart Khan is somehow, so he's feeding him all this stuff so that Harrison Khan will have this whole story, fabricate this whole story in his own head about who he is and his abilities will come out. But what did you make of that? Um, I really got that it was the first time. Um and mm-hmm. that, you know, they had given him the surgery and everything and allowed him to heal, kept him asleep, so that when he woke up, it was it was more convincing to feed him this line uh, and everything. And, and, and really, you know, you cosmetic surgery can even have that effect on people to, to change their personalities sometimes or whatnot. Um, so it, it made sense that, that that would be the way to do it with Khan. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right. I think that's what they were going for. I do think that it's it's a little bit vague. This is why I I I'm missing that part of the story. How they discover him on the Botany Bay and how he comes to be in the hands of Marcus. And I, I really think that part of the story was needed, and so I am disappointed that that is not part of the comic series. Yeah, it would be interesting to have that and and um and so I, I love um that they do have uh, at the end here this idea that there was a mission that they had had for somebody to blow up Praxis, and and that is where he had been hurt. Now, this is where you could get the fact that he may have already been working for Starfleet before and, um, you know, had already been on some missions and had gotten hurt for real. Um, And so... Um, but uh, that he's going to use this personal transporter to go to Kronos to set it up to destroy Praxis and, and therefore really cripple the Klingon's war machine, um, which is which is awesome. And the fact that he yeah. does it by himself, uh, it's pretty awesome. I, I, I mean, it, it reminds <laughs> you of that scene in, in Into Darkness where he's just taking on all of those Klingons single-handedly, you know, blowing well, up ships and... All of that kind of yeah. stuff. So, um, no, it's it's Well, great. that's what the whole ending of the comic is, you know, where he's flipping around and it's very much like the end of darkness. When I said at the beginning, too, that I felt the story was a little bit shallow, I think part of that is that the latter part, I mean, like the final five pages of the comic, more than that, six, seven, eight, uh, almost nine, almost the final nine pages of the comic, there's almost, it's just action. So you just basically flip through the pages. And so it feels like it's like a half-length comic compared to the first three. Yeah, it does go really quick um, in that sense. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, I do kind of wish that they had added some more pages uh, to this because of that. But uh, I do have to say uh, on that, though, that the artwork is really cool. Um, and as it, as it has been for the whole series, I really like the artwork in here. And I kind of like the way that uh, he, he finally realizes who he is in the end and that as he's watching Praxis explode, he's having the visions of himself come back, that blood-splattered face that we saw. Uh, so I thought that that mm-hmm. was pretty uh, pretty intense way to remember who you are. And then he you know does the great thing, I remember my name, and then he tells Marcus that he's on his way back and he says, I'm on my way. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. 
Of course, you realize that this, I don't know if we'll ever get an explanation of this, but the explosion of Praxis here is happening so much earlier in the timeline in the Abrams verse, because, you know, Sulu is much older, captain of the Excelsior when that happens in the prime timeline. And here he's still young, hasn't been out of the academy very long at all. His sister's working for Section 31, and he's flying the Enterprise around. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where they're they're. I feel like they just take the the best of what they like, and they're mixing it all together and kind of giving you a, a new cocktail. Um, and so not everything's going to be the same. Uh, that some things might happen before, or after. I mean, obviously Vulcan was never destroyed either in the other timeline. So, right. you know, there's a lot of things that are different in this one. Um, and uh, I just thought it was fun. You know, we all had the. The thought is that Praxis destroyed and, and the Klingon moon, and they actually put that much thought into it. And obviously, the writers here of the comic were like, well, yeah, we're just going to actually answer that question for you. Not only was it Praxis, but we know the badass who destroyed it, it was Khan himself. So <laughs> it is something. So I, I'm still enjoying the series very much. I'm a little bit disappointed with issue number four here, but I am looking forward to number five. And uh, just a month to go. Yeah, I can't believe that we're we're already going to be at uh, number five. That's crazy. So I'm really excited, though, to, to have it this series end. I hope that it ends well. So on a whole, it, it's still been a great series. Let's just cross our fingers that it, it finishes strong. Definitely. All right. Well, that's all we have in news. Before we jump into the feature, we're going to continue our look at the Slings and Arrows series this week. Uh, Before we do that, we'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Audible.com. Now, Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from. And of course, many of you may already be Audible listeners. But if you're not, you'll definitely want to take a look at Audible. Because if you love podcasts, which obviously you do if you're listening to this and, and, and other podcasts, audiobooks are something you'll definitely love. It's it's a great way to read books, and I'm doing the air quotes there with my fingers right now, but that's how I think of it, too, is, is reading books. And they have a lot of Star Trek books on there. Unfortunately, as we've talked about here on the show before, they don't have all the Star Trek books up there, but lots of the great hardcovers from the past are there. Lots and lots of the numbered TOS books are there. A lot of TNG books are up there as well. Prime Directive Federation is up there, two of my favorites. But what we'd like to do this week is recommend a book to you. And since we just talked about Khan and the comic here, we'd like to recommend the novelization of Into Darkness that's narrated by Alice Eve. Now, Matthew, you listened to the audio version, right? And I guess read through the printed version as well. I did uh, listen to the uh, audio version. And uh, Alice Eve does a a really fantastic job for the whole um, she has some interesting characterizations when she reads some of the characters like Marcus. Um, so that was fun to hear her do. Um, she has a great voice as we've all known, just hearing her in the film. And, uh, I really enjoyed the, the, the novelization actually. Um, I think Alan Dean Foster does a great job of expanding some of the scenes a little bit to allow the dialogue to, to kind of sink in a little bit more and, and give us just a little bit more background on some of those key scenes. Um, and so I really like that. And uh, I can't recommend this more highly. I think Alice does a great job of, of reading the book. And, and, and this is a, is a fun listen. Um, and so if you are just wanting a little bit more background of the film and you enjoy Alice Eve, well, we have the best of both worlds here for you. And so this is perfect for any Star Trek fan. Yeah, 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 it is good. And uh, and I love listening to Alice speak as well. So you can pick this up if you want. As a Trek of Film listener, we do have an offer for you. You can get this book absolutely free. Of course, you can get another book if Into Darkness is not what you want absolutely free as well. Uh, just for trying Audible, if you go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up, you can choose one audiobook free. You can get a trial for Audible. Even if you choose not to stick with Audible after that period, you can still keep that audiobook. It's yours to keep. So nothing to lose, but a lot to gain because Audible is really, really a fantastic service. I've been an Audible listener myself for 14 years. I cannot believe it has been that long. Audible really helped me keep my sanity back in the day when I used to commute four and a half hours round trip every single day 
to my job here in Tokyo. So I cannot recommend Audible highly enough. You, you're, you're absolutely going to love it. So go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up today. Uh, get a free audio book. And we really thank Audible for their support of literary treks and for supporting the network. Of course, this week we're going to be talking about uh, The Oppressor's Wrong, which is the second book in the Slings and Arrows collection that we've been reading, the, the small ebooks that they uh, printed uh, a few years back. And, and actually, they did print all these. They, I think they put them all together in one big volume, if I'm not mistaken. But um, had these on ebook when they first came out, and we did the first one a few weeks ago. And decided it would be fun to go back and, and, and kind of continue with the series as we got back in here in the new year. So we enjoyed the first one mostly. It had some good things in it. Um, this one is great. Uh, the Enterprise is, is uh, assigned to uh, fairy demolition experts from Deep Space Nine to Starbase 375. And, and just as they arrive, it's when that whole thing is happening with Paradise Lost, where Admiral Layton is declaring martial law on Earth, and the Federation has been put in the state of emergency. And so Picard and his Enterprise crew find out um, that it may not actually be the Dominion who's responsible for these quote-unquote bombings that are happening. And so um, as martial law is being declared on Earth, the Enterprise may find herself the next casualty. And uh, so really good setup for the story. I mean, really rich. Um, and it's funny, as I'm reading The Fall and uh, almost finished with that, I talk to Dayton next week. But I was thinking about how rich this storyline was here and how many of those things we actually saw here first um and and it's uh it just it's playing off really well that whole idea of creating an uh, um uh, era of fear you know uh they are doing a really good job of of the dominion in 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 the the tone in the universe uh, at least in the off quarter is just palpable you know with with how scared people are of the dominion and i liked seeing the other side of um, you know, what Admiral Layton was doing and what other people in the galaxy were involved in, especially here, um, the Enterprise. So just uh, those are kind of my upfront thoughts there, Chris. What about you as, as we read through this this week? Yeah, I'm pretty much with you. I, I really enjoyed this book in particular because of the fact that it adds something to Homefront and Paradise Lost. I I love books that are just completely their own standalone story, of course, but but I especially like books and comics that enrich things that we've seen on screen. And Homefront and Paradise Lost, two great episodes of DS9, but they do feel kind of self-contained at the same time, right? You know, most, most of the action is taking place there in San Francisco, and you don't really quite know what's going on, but you know that Leighton's up to, to something, and he's got some help. And... You also wonder, as I always do anyway, when events are going on, like, what is the Enterprise doing? You kind of felt like that with the Dominion War in general, right? Like, what is the Enterprise doing? It's the flagship. It's got to be doing something important. But, of course, we don't see it because it's not the right series on television. So so this, this book, I think, really, and I'm curious to see the next time I go back and watch Homefront Paradise Lost, how much this adds to the experience for me, knowing all this stuff that was going on and knowing how much more involved Leighton's plans were to try to seize control of earth than what we knew about just from the episodes. Uh, so I think they picked a real, there are so many things they could choose, right? To, to fill in the gap between generations and first contact and to give us that shakedown cruise of the enterprise E, which is part of the point of the series. I think they chose really excellent material to build this book around. Yeah, I, I definitely agree, and I thought one of the most exciting things was was uh, just the small amount of time that uh, Cisco and Picard get to spend together through subspace, and the fact that it really helped bring these two guys together. Um, and Picard yeah. even thinking to himself that the only person he could trust on Earth was Cisco, um, and so I thought that was a really neat way to to watch these two guys kind of work together. Uh, especially with the fact of, of what they had been through and how it, it's still a little awkward for them when they talk. Um, 
Yeah, and, I I actually made a note on that, and before they get to the part where they say that it's kind of awkward, I, I was thinking like this conversation's it's kind of strange. Picard's asking Cisco about Jake. You know, where is Jake? I thought it was a little bit. It felt odd because of the history we know between those two characters, but but then they do get into the fact that it was it's a little bit awkward between them still. So um, it was interesting to see them talk to each other. Like you said, interesting that Picard felt that Cisco was the only person on Earth he could trust. I, I, I thought it was both interesting and odd. I guess that's actually what I jotted down as a note. Yeah, it is. It is kind of strange, and, and yet. Um... It, it seemed like something to me a little bit that Picard might do to try and, um, you know, smooth over as the diplomat that he always is and, and yeah. broach subjects that would be um, something that would be helpful for um, Cisco to be thinking about when they're talking, you know, his son and all those kind of things. So I, I think that's that that was that was really well done uh, and it, at least just added to the storyline for me of. These two people we never get to see interact on screen, but you know they've got to have some knowledge of each other more than just their meeting, you know, that one time. Well, they have to because it seems like, and especially with Picard, like every Starfleet captain knows every other Starfleet captain, right? Because they always say, oh, that's Captain so-and-so from the so-and-so. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's like a big club, you know, because they all just hang out at the captain's table and uh, they yeah. tell stories and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, just like that book series. But exactly. you have to know how to get into that bar, though. You can it's, only get in if you're yeah, a captain. Yeah, you got to have the special handshake. And if you don't have the special handshake, you can't get in. I thought it was it was, um, it was was down the alley and the door marked nine and three-fourths, right? Uh, yes, you, you could use <laughs> nine and three-quarters, uh, that hallway. But you still have to have the handshake. So, I mean, you, okay. you might know where yeah. it is, Chris, but, uh, you know. You still can't Unless you've get got in. the fancy yeah. handwork, you can't get in. <laughs> how how did you think it was pure coincidence, but kind of funny to me that the commander who turns captain of the Starbase, who's involved in this great conspiracy plot with Leighton and Starfleet, happened to be named Snowden? Yeah, Chris, that was... Um... Well, fortuitous uh, that they got that one right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I guess so. uh, apparently, you know, they know their history. And uh, Snowden yeah. was a perfect name to be using. And so that is actually pretty funny. Um, you know, what I liked about this is is that you we knew in Homefront and Paradise Lost that um, Leighton was sending people that he thought were trustworthy in key places. Um, we, we had We had heard that. Um, um, in the episode and so what I thought was really great here is that we actually got to see that happen play out and that he had been you know placing these people there uh, I thought it was awesome to you know in the book that we see play out the um, red squad had, had just left there you know before the Enterprise had gotten there in the Lakota all of that just really well done it, it, it seemed like um, the author had really kind of laid out the timeline yeah, and, and worked very hard to make sure that everything lined up so that, like you said, if you go back and watch Paradise Lost again and, and Homefront, um, you are going to um, be thinking about this story and everything else that's happening on the other side yeah. of the Alpha Quadrant. Definitely. And you also mentioned in, in your intro that maybe it's not the Dominion behind the bombings. What I found interesting here was that so the Antwerp bombing, that was the Dominion. Right. But what we didn't get from the DS9 episodes is the fact that, well, we know that Leighton is using that as an opportunity to try to seize control. But the, the idea that, that Leighton would then plot to bomb other Starfleet facilities himself, by proxy anyway, as a way of, of using the Antwerp bombing to spread fear throughout the Federation that, that adds a depth to his plan that it takes him from being just kind of your standard badmiral to being more like the Admiral Marcus from into darkness level of badmiral for me. 
Definitely, yeah. I mean, when you want to bomb the flagship of the Federation, um, because uh, Picard is just a big thorn in your side, you know, because he carries so much weight, you know you're probably on the wrong side. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I thought that, that uh, they did a great job of, of making his character even more despicable. And, and yeah, very interesting. Very much uh, that in that Admiral Marcus vein before Admiral Marcus exists. So um, apparently uh, the guys writing Into Darkness, they read the the, the lit <laughs> you think, here. They, you, they know their You think stuff. they got it from slings and arrows? Yeah, uh, they, they did. So um, I thought that that was, that was really cool. Um, Maybe so. And really well done. So this source material is all fantastic. What I was also impressed with here, not necessarily that I loved the storyline, but in such a short space, I was impressed that they were able to give us this great Dominion threat story, but also work in a B story, or as I call it, the E story for Data about his emotionship, because we know what happened with his emotionship in generations and we know it became fused. And by the time we get to first contact, we know that he has the ability to just turn off his emotionship. He just flip and it's, it's off. But how does he learn to deal with these emotions? And we do get some of that here in the story. Now, I, I can't say that I really love the way data is written here. In fact, I think that the way data is written here when he really flips out, when he thinks that other people on the engineering team are double-checking his work and such, I thought it was pretty poorly written, and it felt like Data was on a high school drama show. Yeah, apparently he was on High School Musical. I was waiting for him to like just burst into song at any moment. Yeah, <laughs> and it felt I've like I've got that. feelings, and they're coming <laughs> out on you, because I don't know how to handle them, and I'm an android. <laughs> like just waiting it felt for, like that yeah yeah something like that i actually put my notes drama droid yes exactly it says but data had turned away the pad in his hand and marched to the holodeck door as trevet came in and it says if daniels didn't know better he'd say data had made a dramatic exit yes drama yes. droid that was my comment at the end drama droid but it was really weird, like how data flipped out. I wasn't prepared for that. And, and I did feel like I get what you're trying to do with the story here. But I really can't buy that data would ever actually react that way. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the things about, you know, first contact that isn't done well is that they do kind of gloss over this whole idea that he's been given emotions and it's been fused and um you know i mean they heck they they give themselves a year between films in the timeline so that he could deal with this kind of stuff uh, i do expect him to be something like this uh in some way but this was a little bit over the top for me. It just yeah, it, it doesn't it work the way they want it or the way the author wants it to here. And so, um, but hey, uh, I, I appreciate at least that they are trying to continue the story um, and, and get you to a point where um, first contact will then make more sense, hopefully, for Data's character. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so it was good to try to get that continuation a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and of course, it leads, it does give us the storyline here about Data and his art and his music. You know, we've, we have found out that he's stopped painting, he's stopped performing music, he's stopped acting as well because he doesn't know how to deal with the emotion. He actually thinks that having emotions has robbed him of his ability to do creative work to paint, to play music and act. And that's kind of, it's, it's an interesting twist, I guess, to think how would an Android react to this because he's accustomed to everything being perfect and doesn't even realize that art is subjective and it's the emotion that, that makes the art great. You might not like the painting, but it's, it's a manifestation of the emotion of the painter 
And it's something that Dato had never even considered in the past, even as he studied these 570, I think it was, 500-something painters from planets all over the galaxy. And 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 then he he's finally convinced, though, to just dump that. He's like, okay, I deleted it all. It's gone. And what do we get in the end? In the end, I love the fact that the centerpiece of the art exhibit is, and the most popular work there is a picture, a painting that Data did of Spot licking her ass. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I did think that that was really, uh, 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 when they were, we were doing this whole thing with Data, I thought that that was really interesting. Um, you know, when learning about emotion and, and the difference that it is, um, yeah. because, you know, for him, perfection was making things, um, sound exactly like he had heard or the exact representation of the note or the exact representation of the, the painting of a, you know, like a pineapple or whatever. Um, that was good art to him. Yeah, exactly. And so, but how emotion does change our view of film and and artwork and music and all of that um is was an interesting thing to watch data have to learn so that part even though some of the other things were a little bit crazy i really liked them bringing that in with data and kind of um using that as an opportunity to help him you know because um that type of therapy is actually helpful yeah for for real people in, in real life. And so I thought that that was pretty interesting and, and actually well done for the character. Yeah. I think the data storyline in here is fine. And once you get past the dialogue where he flips out because of people double checking his work and, and he feels like he's being accused of making a mistake in this holodeck program that they're trying to recreate to study the bombings. Once you get past that dialogue, the stuff that happens after that, where he's being tu- being tutored in painting and and working on the on the projects, I think the rest of it flows okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there are, are a number of DS nine setups in here as well that that we were mentioning on the other side of the page. The other side of the page. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, Chris, I, I think uh, that was one of the things that I really liked about this is I loved that they are using a lot of Deep Space Nine in the story. We got to see O'Brien. We got to see a little bit of Kira um, working here um, and also working to set up a lot of the things we're going to see in the Dominion War. They do a great job of uh, setting up Admiral Ross um, at Starbase 375 which they mm-hmm. mention is one of the most important outposts in the Federation. So uh, having this post is, means you have a really prestigious job. Um, and so um, setting up the importance of Admiral Ross for us and, and who he's going to be. Um, and uh, they uh, also use the Bellerophon, his ship. I thought that was really interesting, the ship that's on call for him as the Admiral. Um, so I thought that was great to see. So just tying these little pieces together, and this was really well done compared to the last book where they were just kind of slapping you across the face with continuity yeah. things like, you know, uh, Riker and his... The Riker maneuver in Insurrection. About. Yeah. Like, I think I'm going to use some plasma, you know, shoot it out the vents. And, yeah. Another thing they picked up in here from DS9 that was interesting in terms of continuity is that they had Munez on the team. Yes, yes, which I liked because he was such a great character. Um, and well, you... well, it's also good because, you know, it, it never played out on the series the way they wanted that to play right. out. You know, the whole idea of O'Brien and his engineering team, and they had this kind of pact between the engineers. And so when you get to the ship on DS9 and Munez dies, you you don't feel, and we talked about this on the Ready Room um, a few months ago, you don't really feel the impact I think that that was supposed to have on you as a yeah. viewer. So here in this story, you actually do have O'Brien working together with Munez uh, to to try to unravel the mystery of this bombing that's taken place on the Starbase. Right. And that was a really nice touch. I think shows uh, that they actually do know the material quite well. Uh, DS9 is a series, not simply Homefront and Paradise Lost. Right. Well, and giving us uh, Paul Porter 
the the poor guy who will get taken over by Borg um, as yep. one of the mm-hmm. engineers and Jordy's engineering, which I thought was great to see. Uh, well done there. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of those kind of things that are happening. And in fact, uh, Daniel's becoming the um, the security chief is uh-huh. uh, something that you will see in first contact as well. So yeah. I thought that that was great to be able to see also, that. Also, Anson Lynch is involved in here as well, who it, also, yeah, of course, yes, Picard Anson has Lynch. to kill in first contact. So Yes. So, yeah. I mean, uh, and, and all of that feels very natural, um, just as these are people on the Enterprise and, and um, you would have gotten to know them. The, the only person that I felt like maybe they kind of crammed into the story a little bit was Hawk at the end, because I feel like they're really trying to make Hawk you know, somebody that you're going to care about so that when he dies... Well, they are, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I don't mind that too much. Um, I, I, I don't, no, that I didn't bother like me at all. I, I, I felt like it made sense that yeah. he's going to be in there because, I mean, he was important in the first book. Yeah. And so having him here in the second book was fine. Uh, he has a, less of a role in the story than he did in the first one, but they're obviously building him up, Yes. which does make sense, so... Now, one thing that stood out to me in here, though, were the questionable deduction skills of Picard. Because what I, I, I found it odd that when Admiral Hahn is killed and they're trying to figure out who did it, and, and Daniels is actually saying that, you know, I, I looked at this guy's face and he had the face of Lieutenant Jonathan Denou, who... Daniels had worked with in the past, but New had been transferred to the Odyssey. And then the Odyssey, of course, is destroyed in the Jim Hadar, the episode called the Jim Hadar on DS9. And so it, I think this guy's a changeling. You know, I don't, right, this guy's supposed to be dead and there's his face. And plus he talks about the fact that, you know, his uniform was torn, but his face was perfect. You know, everyone else has cuts or bruises or soot on their faces and all. His face is perfect. And no one listens to him. And even later on, there's the point where Picard's talking about how the there may be a changeling still on the ship. We have to find the changeling. And I'm thinking, you have clues of where to go look. And I was just, I was kind of surprised at Picard that he didn't take an officer more seriously than that. Yeah, and it was surprising to me in that sense too, because he, they had this experience with a changeling on the ship last book. So last book. Would, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So you'd think you'd be taking more precautions or listening to people when they say, you know, they keep having people um, be in two places at once on the ship. Yeah. You know, this keep kind of ha- happening. So, yeah, that didn't make sense to me at all. The fact that, that Picard wasn't listening. Um, and I know they I guess they needed it for the storyline or something, um, but it did not work as well as they wanted it to. So. Right. Yeah, I I just feel, especially with Picard, I feel with Picard, he's so wise that if an officer is telling you something, you're going to listen and you're going to follow up on it. It just... Yeah, especially in in this situation. Yeah, well, even in cause and effect, I mean, he has data go through the logs just because Beverly says that she's hearing voices at night. Right, exactly. So, yeah. So that was a little bit surprising uh, to me a little bit. But overall, you know, I felt that the plot twists in the story were handled a lot better than they were in book one. I definitely agree, Chris. I, I think, um, you know, we talked about, uh, I think I might have mentioned at the beginning that the, the story um, takes place, you know, between these two episodes. We already know all the secrets behind it. Um, and yet they're crafting a story here that does have suspense to it like i know how the other side of the story is going to turn off out you know on earth but i don't really know how this one's going to turn out and um it, it does keep me guessing and and um you know the whole fact of, of is this uh, uh you know the dominion really or is it not the dominion is is fantastic they do a great job of kind of making you think that the whole time and and give you reasons to kind of doubt that it is, and then reasons to kind of trust that it is, um, and put everything into that, you know, that hazy light 
the kind of fog of war that that Leighton is trying to create. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I felt like all the little plot twists and turns are, are, are well executed in here. And part of that has probably helped by the fact that this is a short story. And so yeah. um, you do have to be succinct in what you're doing and plot everything out well. And I feel like the author really does plot out this uh, quite well. So I think so too. I mean, in here, it's sort of like, you know, and again, not to give away, you know, the ending and everything that happens here. There are people who you suspect, like there are people who you know are involved, right? but you think they performed certain actions and the author does a good job of convincing you or, you know, planting these seeds in your mind that yes, this person did this only to turn it around and find out, no, it was actually someone else who did it. Right. Although the person you suspected was involved, but it's more complicated than you think. And and that really made this book work for me compared to the first book, because with the first book, it was just so obvious all the way through who was responsible for what. And yeah. you almost felt like you almost wanted to take Picard and the other characters and shake them and say, open your eyes. It's so <laughs> obvious yes. what's going on on your ship. So uh, this one works much better for me. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, just to, to kind of, I guess, give the final thoughts on this. Um I liked this book. I think it's well done. Um, I could have done without some of the characterizations of data here. Yeah. But uh, I have to say, on the other side, the the great uh, work that, that was done here with Barkley was fantastic. Man, she just nails um, him as a character. <laughs> um, standing in the background, having an idea, but he could never speak up to, you know, yeah. get the idea out until the very end. So... I thought that was great. Um, I, I liked the the progression for a lot of the characters. Yeah, Picard seems a little bit dense sometimes, but what was interesting about this is that so much of this story has nothing to do with the Enterprise. It really yeah. has to do with this Daniels character. And she made this character so interesting to me that I didn't really care. That I'm reading a book celebrating the the, the um, anniversary of, of of the next generation, and yet the main character is not really Picard or Data or any of those people. It's this character Daniels who is actually really fascinating, um, and what he's doing is fascinating because really this book is like um, uh, CSI Star Trek, you know, like yeah. CSI Deep Space Nine. Um, yeah. but CSI Starbase three, seven, five. Um, so I, I really like that a lot. And, uh, so I think this is well done. I, I think I'd give it, um, Hmm. I'd give this seven out of 10 fancy cloaking devices. Okay. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, um, that cloaking thing and also what's going on here with the Red Squad cadet, that technology reminded me a lot of, of what you see in Death and Winter when they can they have these portable yes. devices that allow yes. them to change their yeah. identity. So, um, yeah, and you heard it here first, everyone. When the new series Star Trek CSI Starbase 375 premieres in September, Matthew named it first. So just remember that. Yeah. Um, copyright <laughs> Matthew Rushing. Um, that's going to fund uh, my trips to the world, uh, just wherever I want to go. All right. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed this book very much as well. I, good job of bringing familiar faces in, introducing us to some new characters as well that we actually came to care about. Uh, lots of, of nice nods to past Star Trek. Uh, there's even a nod in here to the Wrath of Khan where he says that he knew just where to hit us when they use the prefix codes to lower the shields yes, on yes. the Enterprise in an attack. So that was that was kind of cool as well. And uh, I definitely recommend this book. And it's a really quick read. You know, I just sit down and just read it straight through. So um, it's fun. It's almost like watching an episode. So so very good. And I would give this one eight paintings of Spot cleaning herself. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that that's what's the centerpiece of the art exhibition at the end of the book? 
yeah that's... some people even wanted to have their own framed copies of yeah it, so. uh it's it's uh it's really well done painting apparently so well done data it really is <laughs> good job data all right. Well, Matthew, I'm glad we got to talk about the next book here in Slings and Arrows today, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about on the network this past week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Janice Rand. And Rand braces for impact against Kirk. If I were on that bridge and I needed to brace for impact, I would totally grab Kirk. I'd grab Rand. You'd grab Rand? All right. Yeah. Well, different strokes <laughs> for different folks, I guess. Earl Grey. Missing 24th century technology. How about, like, a gun that shoots hyposprays? No, I assume you mean it shoots out of the... The chemical. There's like a little mechanical thumb that dispenses it. The ready room. Affliction and divergence. Yeah, the other interesting thing about that, though, is to compare the Klingon ethics with the Section 31 ethics, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, there are some groups within the Klingons who maybe don't feel exactly the same way. But then yeah. there's this group within the humans who feels completely different. And you kind of wonder what the Klingons think maybe about someone who wouldn't do this. The orb. Implications of genetic enhancement. And our scientific advancement is is picking up pace all the time, our technological advancement. I think the urge for us to artificially enhance ourselves is going to be too great for us to ignore. To the journey! Resolutions rewrite. Overall, this is a great story. It's about like love and loss and, and about moving on and not being able to move on and has some baddies at the end, you know, and it's just, it's, yeah. uh, it's good. Come on, this is why Harlequin paperbacks get sold. Commentary, Trek stars. Iris Stephen Bear, Crash. I, I love Iris Stephen Bear. As, as much as, as uh, anyone can love a television showrunner who they never met. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I'm glad to put that on the other. Warp 5. Xenophobia and the Coalition of Planets. Justification in his mind is that the Vulcans were observing us. Mm. They knew the war was happening. Mm. They didn't do anything to stop it. But, you know, it really wasn't the place of the Vulcans to step in and stop World mm. War Three. Literary Treks. James Swallow, The Poison Chalice. Everybody in this story is dragged into a situation they don't want, want to be in. And that's kind of where the, the title, The Poison Chalice, originally came from, is the idea that, you know, Riker is given this promotion, which uh, on paper sounds like a really great idea, but it's a poison chalice. You know, it, it turns out that it's not what he thought it was. And in fact, you know, he's being dragged into something that he doesn't want to be involved in. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new shows for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows for you. And you'll find them in a variety of places, including on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can download or stream from the website. So grab the shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. All right, Matthew, since we recorded it, again, it's been a while it feels like longer than it's been, I think, but it's been a while, but we have had some feedback and we got a message from Martin Dunn in London, who actually was referring to Slings and Arrows, our last Slings and Arrows show. He said, your mention of Lieutenant Hawk in a recent episode of Literary Treks reviewing Slings and Arrows made me think that a discussion of lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transsexual characters in Trek lit might make for an interesting show. It's well known that the TV shows and movies ignore these characters altogether, but the Litverse has more than made up for it with a variety of types across all the series. Therefore, it's a subject that only the Lit show could discuss. Yeah, it's definitely something that uh, the literary universe wasn't afraid to tackle in some ways. Um, it, it's it's not... Um, it's not huge, but they, they do have plenty of characters on the side um, that, like Hawk, that they have decided would, would be uh, gay or lesbian or bisexual. And so, um, yeah, it does make for an interesting conversation um, around that and uh, representing that uh, part of the population. Yeah. So we'll keep that in mind for a topic uh, somewhere down the road. 
as um, we look for different things to talk about. And, you know, I will say, as I always say, in defense of the writers on the television series, you know, I don't think that it was so much a case that none of the writers wanted to address these issues or have these characters, but, you know, they have to work within the framework of television and what the studio executives will go for and what the networks will go for and what the perceptions are of the general television audience. And so we didn't get that in Star Trek. And I do agree that it is really lacking because if you look at our world today, I mean, it's it's part of society. It's part of life. It's a, a part of how, you know, people choose very diverse ways to live, which is the great thing about life and Star Trek. And it should be in there. But it wasn't. So so it is good that the literature is able to tackle those issues as well and give us maybe a more realistic view of of society and crews and how people would be living. So thanks again for your feedback, Martin. And for everyone else, if you want to send us a message, we would love to hear from you. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that will come to us by email. You can also send us a voicemail on the website if you'd like to do that, or you can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums and talk to us and other listeners about the show or books, comics, anything about Star Trek you want to talk about. Lots of categories for that over there. Then in social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And you'll also find us on Twitter, where we're always tweeting away about Star Trek under username trekfm. All right, Matthew. Well, I have to ask you, you know, when you're not taking art lessons from data, where can people find you if they want to chat you up about Star Trek books or comics? Well, Chris, if you'd like to find me, you can do that on Twitter at mattrushing02. I just tweet away about all sorts of different things, whatever's um, you know, got a bee in my bonnet at the moment. Um, and right now for me, it's, um, oh goodness, it's, it's, uh, a little bit of everything movies, uh, that are, have been coming out. There's been a ton, uh, at, at the end of the year and the beginning here. And then, well, it, it's football season for me and, and my 49ers are in the playoffs. So I might tweet a little bit about that. And then, of course, uh, you can join us on the Orb, where we talk about Deep Space Nine all the time. Uh, so I hope you'll do that. It's a, it's a fun show where we talk about all the sorts of uh, different ideas and, and people, places, things. Uh, we'll talk about an episode every once in a while, too. Uh, so join us there. And then I have my own personal blog at uh, 42lifebetween.wordpress.com. Uh, you can catch up with me there writing about all sorts of different things, whether it's uh, movie reviews or books that are read that don't have anything to do with Star Trek or, you know, just other things that uh, come to mind. So now, Chris, uh, when you're not uh, standing around and just gazing intently at pictures of Spot cleaning himself, then my <laughs> our one and only Android with emotion data, where can we find you? <laughs> yes, yeah, standing there gazing and and as happened in the book saying data you do know what she's doing right yeah that was it's in the awkward. book <laughs> it's uh, right it there so um yeah now you can find me on twitter as well my username is c brian jones you can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username and i won't be tweeting about football as much anymore because for me with college football the season is over um yeah. Crashed and burned at the end of the season, unfortunately, for my Crimson Tide. They did. I feel bad for you. Yeah, it was it was hard to swallow, but I do have to say congratulations to our friend Larry Nemechek for the victory that his Oklahoma Sooners had over my Crimson Tide. That so. is true. Uh, of course, you should probably say congratulations to me, too, for the win that my Aggies had, in, uh, so which was a fantastic game. Yeah, they they came storming back there at the end. That Johnny Menzel, yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know what he's going to do in the NFL, if anything. But man, that's one heck of a way to go out college football. Well, it is. Well, he couldn't go out any differently. That's than that, true. Right? So <laughs> knowing him, no. So, um, but we're heading into for me non-sports ball season, and soon for you, Matthew, non-sports ball seasons. The NFL season will be ending before long. But anyway, yeah, so besides uh, Twitter, where I will be tweeting a lot about Star Trek, so tune in there for that, plus other things. You can find me on my personal website, cbrianjones.com. I do post some Star Trek stuff there, but a lot of non-Star Trek stuff. And then besides the Orb, you'll find me on my interview show, Matterstream. You'll also find me on the Ready Room every week with guests and hosts from all around the network. 
as we talk about all five live-action Star Trek series, and you'll find me on Warp 5, where we talk exclusively about Enterprise. So uh, please tune into those shows and uh, find out what we're talking about there. Also, before we let you go, we'd like to remind you once again to please support our sponsor, Audible. They help us bring the show to you, and you can get a free audiobook of your choice, whether it's Into Darkness, read by Alice Eve, or anything else that you like, Star Trek or otherwise, just by trying Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm. To get a free audiobook, you get to keep that even if you don't stick with Audible, so nothing to lose. And it does help us bring literary tricks and all of our shows to you every week. So we really thank you for supporting them and thank Audible for supporting the network. And also, if you go over to trek.fm slash donate, you'll find some original alien illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. We have those for you as a thank you for contributions to the network. So if you'd like to make a donation, help us cover the costs of production, hosting, and bandwidth. Just go over to trek.fm slash donate. Choose the level of contribution that you'd like to make. Choose which aliens you'd like to have. And we really thank you for helping us keep the network going. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.